0: Hello everyone, I'm Monty Judah with Wine and Lamb Ministries, and this is another program of our study we are doing Insight into Isaiah. And when we left off uh, in the last program, we were in chapter 51, so we're back to chapter 51. And we're going to begin at verse 12. Just a quick review of what Isaiah has been telling us before. He's hinted at trying to get the children of Israel to remember from where they came his famous statement of remember the, ho- the rock from, he- from where you've been hewn in other words look back to your father Abraham, Isaac and Jacob where did you guys come from what did God do with you uh, in in the exodus look back to those things and see what God's been doing with you and with your ancestors before the logic here is what God has been doing in the past uh, with your people is what God is doing with you today and in fact in the very last uh, passage that we looked at uh, he made mention in verse 9 he said uh, was it not thou who cut Rahab in pieces who pierced the dragon and as I pointed out that's an expression it's an interesting expression but it's really referring to Egypt and Pharaoh Rahab and the dragon is referring to the mystical uh, mythical um, great beast of the sea about how he parted the sea you know and that he he took away the domain for even the mythical beast uh, of the sea the dragon is what's being translated here so he's making reference to look back to what I did at Egypt now before we go further I want to echo just one more thing that goes along with that, which is really fundamental for us as messianic believers. I've been teaching the Torah for a long time, uh, and if I were, I've been teaching it enough that I can kind of summarize it in a few sentences. If I were to summarize the whole Torah that we have in just a few sentences, it would go like this. The Torah is really the story about one generation about how God led them out of Egypt in a journey toward the promised land. The first book, Genesis, is really explaining how in the world did those people get stuck in Egypt to begin with. Now, that's the dominant story of the Torah. And as you see this story unfold, you're actually uh, learning about God's redemption. The word redeem... In its purest definition, its denotation means to be purchased out of slavery. To redeem someone is to purchase them out of slavery. Deliverance from slavery, pay a certain price, whatever the case may be. And it serves as the biblical definition for us for the work of the Messiah who comes to us. We are all slaves to sin. We're all stuck in this world, this disrupted world, which is Mitzrayim, Egypt. It's uh, sorrows and tribulations, troubles and tribulations in the world. That's Egypt. And we are delivered. We're purchased by a price. And the Messiah paid the price for us. This is the great redemption teaching of the Bible. And the Torah is actually teaching us the foundation to understand redemption. And it's all connected to the great story of the the Egyptian exodus. Passover is the first of the feasts commanded to us. And what is the emphasis of the story? Redemption. Let's talk about that story again, about Israel coming out of Egypt, you know, and, and what happened with the lamb, and 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 how the firstborn were delivered, and the story of Israel coming out and crossing the Red Sea, and all Israel was saved from the Egyptians, from the enemy. That's the story of redemption and salvation and deliverance, and all of those things together in that story. Isaiah is drawing us back to that ancient story. He wants us to take that into effect. Um, and so with that said, let's take a look at where we're at right now at verse 12. And he continues on to say this. I, even I, am he who comforts you. If you recall when I've taught to you about the half tours of consolation, this great homiletic teaching in the book of Isaiah in the last seven Sabbaths leading up to the Feast of Trumpets in the annual cycle. Those last seven Sabbaths, they take a phrase from uh, various places in Isaiah. This is one of them. In fact, this phrase right here is in the fourth installment of those seven weeks. And it tells this great story about how Israel's been scattered, they feel like they've been rejected by God, but God says, no, I have not rejected you, I will bring you back, and this is the fourth one he says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. So despite of whatever's been going on in the world, that has happened in your life, whether Trials and tribulations, sorrows, difficulties, losses, frustrations, whatever has been happening in your life, God is declaring to us personally, I, even I, am he who comforts you. And seeking the comfort of the Lord is one of the keys to overcoming and getting beyond trials tribulations and and so forth they come they're, for you to overcome Any trial tribulation you have to come to a point where it's not a pressing issue to you anymore You have to come to the point where you've been comforted or you've been consoled uh, in that uh, any could also use the word, I, even I, am he who consoles you. Because we're going to hear that this is really about consolation from God that's getting ready to come. Uh, Let me continue on with verse 12. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies? And of the son of man who's made like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens, who laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? The exile will soon be set free. And will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea, and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth, and have covered you with the shadow of my hand, to establish the heavens and found the earth, and to say to Zion, You are my people. Now before we go any further, while we're in this dismay... Trials and tribulations and frustrations and problems and so forth. And the Lord is saying, Look, I'm the one that consoles you. I'm the one that comforts you. He then actually gives a couple of words here that are kind of consoling, where he poses the question back to you and says, Well, where, where, who is it you're afraid of? Who, who is the oppressor in your life? Do you really think. That the person oppressing you, do you think the situation that's oppressing you is bigger than what God can do? Do you, do you know that God can overcome that situation? Do you know that God can turn that situation around? He can take any person and turn them around if he wants to. And if he is so chosen to do good to you and to deliver you from these things, you think he cannot do it? That's the rhetorical question. Now, I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of times when the way you console a person is you minimize the problem. You minimize the problem by telling about something that's greater. When a person's super, super depressed, you don't go in there and wallow around in the further depression. You start talking to reasons why they are goodness. And why there are pleasant things. And you reach for them, you look for those. Uh, the simple picture is, when a man is in a pit, there's really only one way to look, and that's look up. Uh, there's nothing to be gained by looking further down. Uh, everything is now pointing to up. And sometimes, as I've heard the expression, sometimes God puts us in a deep, dark pit just to get us to look up sometimes it's just to get us to look up to turn back to him and and i think that's part of the logic of what god's been doing with israel here the judgments that fall upon israel the scattering to the nations and so forth since you didn't want to follow me since you wanted to forget me and so i'm going to put you in a situation where all of a sudden it's going to be very desirable for you to look to me that you will have reasons to look to me, that you won't forget. And so he's calling on Israel to weigh and consider and be reconciled to all of these things. Verse 17, here's the exhortation again. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his ink, The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne, nor is there no one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. These two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction, famine and sword. How shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God." Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people. Behold, I've taken out your hand, the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, Lie down, that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground and like the street for those who walk over it. So his consolation that he's offering to them, he says, Look, uh, the the real reason why you are struggling so much is because you turned away from me. You didn't follow me. And I did what I said I would do. I have punished you. You know, I have given you a cup to drink, which is a terrible cup. And you have drank it all the way down to the dregs of it, to the very bottom of the cup. You have done that. Now, let's talk about how I can comfort you. Let me tell you how I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the cup away from you. I'm going to pull that cup back. I'm going to take that cup of trouble, and I'm going to give it to your oppressors. I'm going to give it to your enemies so that you are no longer under my punishment, that your enemies are now under my punishment, and you are going to be relieved of those kinds of things. This is a wonderful picture of really what forgiveness of sin is. When we sin... We bring harm to ourselves. The judgments of God befall us. He's a just and true God. If you disobey the Lord, the guilty does not go unpunished. it. You. you get punished. You, get, you do yourself in. But when you get forgiven, it's like all the punishment of that sin leaves you and goes somewhere else. And in the case of those that were interacting with you and sinning even against you, the punishment that was on you now goes to them, you know, for that. And it's really a picture of how does forgiveness work. And so part of the consolation, the consoling uh, that God does for his people, is bound up and tied together with the forgiveness of sins. So now that fundamentally begins to beg the question. And this has always been the great question that I've posed to my Jewish brethren is, um, okay, so what are you going to do about the sin you have in your life? I mean, how how are you going to be reconciled to that? And a lot of times my Jewish brethren don't have an answer for that. If you follow the standard line of Judaism, and by the way, this is the standard line of Jewish law. Prayer, penance, and good deeds averts the severe decree. They're saying that if you pray on a regular basis, uh, if you're repentant, oh, I'm sorry I did that, and then you go out and do good deeds, that that is how, You don't get punished ultimately for your sin. That's somehow how you gain forgiveness from God. It's false. That was the teaching and the belief in the days of Yeshua. And so when Yeshua came teaching about repentance and forgiveness, he was talking about what God does. They were talking about what they do. It's the difference between the righteousness of God and self-righteousness. Self righteousness is I'm going to improve my spiritual lot by me doing different things. I'm going to do good things, and somehow that will be an answer for the bad things I have done. Salvation by works. It's not true. It is not correct. The salvation comes from the Lord. The Lord is the one who does the comforting. The, word, the Lord is the one who does the forgiving. It is not done by having more good works and and uh, being, oh, I'm sorry. You know what? Uh, as much as uh, the Christians have this doctrine down verbally about things like salvation is not by works. It's by faith in God. And they, they, we all got the party line. We all say it. But in practice, Christians do the same thing that Jews do. In practice, they believe that if they do certain things, it overcomes the bad things they have done. That somehow they work themselves out of sin by doing good things. And as a result, um, religious men today are just as guilty of self-righteousness As the ancients were when Yeshua came and preached to them about redemption. And it's not by the righteousness of the children of Israel that they were delivered out of Egypt. It's by the grace and mercy of God. They were delivered because he had made a promise to their fathers and he came to fulfill the promise he made to them. So it's the children of promise, Paul says, they're the ones that receive the salvation. They're the ones that are a part of what God is doing. So it, there's a there's a breaking of that that is taking place uh, that Isaiah is trying to say to the people. Uh, to, you got to understand why you got the problem with God. How's God going to solve that? And how God solves it is part of the consolation of God. That's how He comforts His people. Chapter 52. Again, here's this. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! He says, Awake, awake, clothe yourself in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no more come into you. Shake yourself from the dust, rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to reside there, then the Assyrians, uh, then oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord. Seeing that my people have been taken away without cause, again the Lord declares, Those who rule over them uh, howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Now before we get to the therefore, let's kind of understand what, what he just said to us. He's telling them, stand up, wake up to what the reality is, wake up to what is really real. It is I, the Lord, who do these things, not you, not others, not other men do it. It is I who in fact does it. And he reminds them again. You remember your people? You went down to Egypt and you were oppressed and I brought you up. And just recently the house of Israel, which was in this day had already taken place, the Assyrians came down and took the house of Israel. You remember all these different oppressions? Well, it's again me that's going to solve it. Just as I solved with Egypt, I'll solve the problem with the Assyrians. Whatever is is befalling you, I'm the one who has the ability to deliver from it. All you have to do is turn back to me. Now, here is the great irony of it. When he describes the redemption, look at verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. The very word redeemed means, are you ready? Purchased out of slavery. The word redeem means a purchase has been made. But then he says, not by money. So, what, what, what's he saying? He said, not by what you use as exchange of value. You'll not be redeemed by something of, the, of value that you have in exchange for. So if it's not by money, which is not by the things how we as men exchange value with one another, then what it could possibly be? Well, let me go ahead and give you the quick answer. It would be have something that God would do. The reality is that God has given his only begotten son. That's the purchase price for our redemption. The principle of substitution, the whole sacrificial system is trying to teach mankind that when you make a mistake, that there's a price to be paid for it. You owe your debt. Now, amongst men, we can do it very simply. I'll take something of value that I have, and I'll give it to you for equal value of what it is that I did. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's the way it works. Fair and equal. Okay, but what about the sins we've done with God? God, would you like to have another uh, sheep that's of no value to Him? How about the cattle on a thousand hills? Which cattle are you talking about? They all belong to me. What have we got of value to give to God that will make payment for? substitution for our sins against God. I know what to do when I have sinned against a man. I know how to to solve that problem. I understand that substitution. How do I solve the substitution of the problem when I've sinned against God? He says, well, you'll be redeemed without money. It's not going to be what you normally use when you resolve problems with other men you and I are going to solve this problem in a completely new and unique way well what the new and unique way is God makes the payment for us not us he says I'll pay it for you now are we willing to accept that as the payment or not are we willing to accept the price paid by God for that issue so that we might be reconciled to God and by reconciled to God we can say we have atonement which by the way that's what atonement means, you're reconciled to God so the stage is being set here, Isaiah is trying to lay out how God's great redemption works So here's how he concludes that argument he just made. Verse 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Now, if you're looking for (laughs) a set of verses out of, say, the book of Isaiah, and you would like to put them in a very spiritual, very religious uh, greeting card that you want to send to a fellow Christian, you can't find better words than these that you just heard. The Messiah has bared his arm. We have seen the salvation of the Lord. He has paid the price, and this is the good news. The good news is that God has forgiven us, and he has delivered us out of our sins, and we have salvation, and our God, trusting in him, he reigns above all things. There is no one who's going to defeat him. He's the answer. He is the complete answer that we've been needing. And so it's a very powerful passage here. Let me tell you how powerful this is. In the ancient days, in the days of Yeshua, the really devout of the children of Israel who truly were looking for the Messiah, this is what they believed. This was how they would proclaim their impending salvation. This is how they would express their faith in God there's two phrases here uh, verse nine for the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem so they, the word remember the word consolation and comfort mean essentially the same thing redemption obviously means the same thing now let me take you to a New Testament story and it's in the Gospel of Luke and it has to do with When Yeshua was a small child. In fact, Yeshua wasn't more than 40 days old at this point. And Mary and Joseph, according to the law, if you have a son, after 40 days after the birth, you're supposed to take them to the temple for what's called the redemption of the firstborn. It's a law. It's a command. All of the firstborn belongs to the Lord, and they all have to be redeemed. And so they would take, according to the law, you had to take your firstborn son after 40 days. It was after 80 days for a daughter. But on 40 days, they're going to the temple. So here's Mary and Joseph bringing Yeshua for the very first time into the temple. And Luke records for us a very interesting story about two particular people that were in the temple that day. And let me take you to that story. We're in Luke chapter 2. Let me begin at verse 21, and let me read to you. And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Yeshua, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, that's 40 days, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be holy to the Lord, or redeemed. And to offer sacrifice according to what it said in the law, a pair of turtledoves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was a righteous and devout man looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Yeshua to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let my bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Here's Simeon, here's this very righteous and devout man, and what does he believe? He believes in the hope of the consolation of Israel. He believes in God has the power and the ability to go beyond anything that any man can do. And that he can console us and comfort us through the work of the Messiah. That God will pay the price for us so that we can have the substitution so that we can get rid of sin which brings death we can receive forgiveness which then brings life that's what he believes the words that we just read from Isaiah that that uh, Simeons referring to that's the gospel That's as powerful as it can possibly get. There is nothing in the New Testament more powerful than what was just said by Isaiah about what the New Testament message is. The story of redemption and how God's redemption works. Isaiah laid it out, defined the gospel, so that the New Testament is simply echoing what Isaiah said. Here's a man, he's repeating the very words from Isaiah. He believes in the consolation of Israel. Now it goes a step further. And Simeon blessed him, said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of, of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed, a sword that will pierce even your own soul, to end the thoughts, from, for, to, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And, and so he's saying, this is what God's going to do with him. He is going to come and we're, we're going to put the purchase price on the table. Who's going to accept that purchase price and who's not? Whose heart is inclined toward God and will turn to God and whose heart is hard and will turn away from God? this is going to be the measuring stick and for us who are believers this is the reason why it's fundamental in our teaching that your faith in the messiah is the pinnacle that is the determinant about whether or not you have salvation you either have his payment method for your sins or you don't have his payment methods the thing that joins us all as believers together is the redemptive work of the Messiah. It is not because we all go to the same church. It's not because your doctrine lines up on some of these other things with other people's doctrine. Those are the things that we use to separate one another with. If we were really focused on what is the number one priority... What is the most important thing to us? we would be listening to what Isaiah is talking about right here, and we would be talking about the Lord's redemption and how powerful His redemption is. And by the way, in the New Testament, as you go through there, that's what the New Testament writers are saying. They are emphasizing that. They're putting all the focus on that. They're trying to tell the story about how God has done this. One of the things I always point out to people <clears throat> The 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 powerful, the one story that really focuses it is Passover. That memorial is the one that focuses on God delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt, the lamb, the blood of the lamb, um, eating the bread of haste, how God saved, how we learned about God's salvation and deliverance. It's all told in that story of how we left Egypt. So, the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, guess what is the dominant topic in the complete narrative of Yeshua coming and ministering? How many chapters are dedicated in each of the Gospels to what Yeshua said and did associated with the Passover? The day before the Passover, the actual Passover Seder, and the day of Passover. What, how many chapters get spent on just that in the Gospels? The minimum number of chapters is the Gospel of Mark. There's only 13 chapters in the book, and it spends six chapters on that topic. The other Gospels spend even more. So, as I shared with you before about the Torah, it's the story of one generation... Delivered out of Egypt on the journey to the promised land? That you could super sim- I can super simplify you the entire gospel. I can super simplify all the teachings of the gospels by simply saying the following. All those events were to bring forth the Messiah so that he could fulfill the, the work of God's redemption at the Passover. That's what it is, that's what it's all about. That's the reason why, having said that, that's the reason why I have a real problem with people after that fact trying to put emphasis on other things. That's actually one of my reasons I have a little bit of a struggle with the book of Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews does not focus on to get my Hebrew brethren to believe in the Messiah on the basis of what the work of redemption and what he did at the Passover. No, he's trying to give some kind of uh, substitution, trying to say how he fulfilled Yom Kippur. About how he was carried outside the city like, like the Yom Kippur ceremony. And so that we all have atonement. Atonement. Now, I agree, we have atonement, and we have been reconciled to God because of his work. But the day of atonement is yet to be fulfilled. Passover has been fulfilled. What was the work of the Messiah? To complete the Passover, to get this whole thing started. Did he come and fulfill the day of atonement? No. The day of atonement is also the day of the Lord. We haven't had the day of the Lord yet. The world is not yet reconciled to God, and the Day of Atonement is the Day of Reconciliation. And to this day, because of that, I see a lot of my brethren, teachers, leaders in the faith, who just ignore the Passover. Who just ignore the story of redemption of the children of Israel out of Egypt. They put no emphasis onto it. They do not go back to the rock from where they were hewn and remember. And then set the stage for understanding what the Messiah has done. Instead, they divorce themselves from all of the previous things, and they have to just take what the Messiah did and have to make it into something else. Like, for example, in the case of drinking the cup of redemption and eating the bread of haste that you do in the Passover Seder, it's turned into Christian communion, and they simply substitute, which, by the way, is correct, the blood and the body of the Messiah... But you don't get, where did that come from? Why why was that such a good idea? Where, why did God come up with that methodology? And oh, by the way, if this is such a great thing for the Christians, how did all them other people get saved? How did Moses get saved? How did Abraham get saved? By the way, let me go ahead and just tell you, the scripture clearly says they were all saved by faith. They believed in the promise of God that he would send a Redeemer. For those of us today, how are we saved? We believe that God sent the Son. We believe in the promise of God that he did it. But where do you remember the promise part unless you go back to the older part that laid the whole thing out? If you don't go back to the older part and you don't have the older part, you don't even know there was a promise You don't know that Abraham, for example, promised to Isaac and to his descendants that the Lord would provide the lamb for himself in that place. And you have no idea that where Yeshua was crucified was the same place where Moriah was taken, where at Moriah was the same place where Isaiah was taking. You have you have no connection to it whatsoever. You don't get it. And for that's like new information to you when you finally hear that so we're trying to learn about this but we're skipping the whole front half of the story and trying to fill in the blanks to justify what we've got by creating other things it's no longer about Israel and the kingdom of Israel and God is the king of Israel and the Sabbath is a sign between him and his people no it's now church a substitute for Israel, we have to establish the institution of the church, and then men get to make rules about that, and so they make complete new substitution for what was god instruction by all of that other stuff. Do you see why it 's important? To go back and understand this. And by the way, the first believers of the Messiah, when he physically came, what are they basing their belief on? What Isaiah said. What Moses and the prophets said. Let me go just a little bit further because we have a second witness on this. Um, Verse 36 here in Luke 2. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow at the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving day and night, night and day, with fastings and prayers. Pretty devout. Very committed to the Lord. Loved the Lord dearly. What did she believe? Here's what it says. Verse 38, and at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon, his faith is labeled as the consolation of Israel. Anna is from the redemption of Jerusalem. That's what, that was the phrases they would say. When they're talking about the Messiah, I'm looking for the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. That's how you would explain, I'm looking for the Messiah, I'm believing the Messiah. The New Testament says, these are devout believers. These are some of the very first people who believed in the Messiah. And that's how they described their faith. Okay, so today... Tell me, how many believers have you met that they labeled themselves as a believer of Yeshua by saying, I have found the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem? Boy, that theology just doesn't line up today. Because that's evidence of how far from the truth we went. How far we had drifted off from what is the real teaching of the Messiah. What are the real things we believe about the Messiah? And the real things we believe about the Messiah are the things being expressed to us by Isaiah as he explains redemption to us and trying to call us back. So let's go back now to um, Isaiah chapter 52. Let me repeat the verse again for you. Verse 9. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And by the holy arm, he has actually physically come And we're talking about the arm of the the Lord. We're talking about the arm of the Lamb. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before. This is really going to come up in chapter 53. The arm of the Lord and the holy arm that's being expressed here is the name of the Lamb's shank bone on a Passover Seder platter. It's called the Zoroa. In the Hebrew, Zoroah is the name of that bone. It's the arm of the lamb. And that's called the arm of the Lord. That's a symbol of the Passover lamb. Passover takes us all the way back to Egypt. Yeshua was with his disciples on the Passover. Fulfilling it, it's the story of redemption. It's the story of salvation and deliverance. And the Lord himself has done this. So that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So now do we understand why Yeshua, after his resurrection, said to his disciples, Go out into all the nations and make disciples of me. Teach them all that I've taught you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go out and share this message of salvation and deliverance to all the nations. Paul, the Apostle Paul, certainly got the message on this one. And he felt that God had specifically commissioned him to go to the nations, to go to the Gentiles. He called himself the Apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was called the Apostle of the Jews. He was the Apostle to the Gentiles. And every time he would go and justify his ministry, where he would explain about his ministry, guess where he would quote from? Where, where was the biblical uh, authority for him to go do that? Guess what? He was going back to verses like this. He was going back to that the goal of the Lord was all the families of the earth would be blessed by this seed from Abraham that this was God's intent from the very beginning that all the people of the world would come to salvation not just the Jews not just Israel and oh by the way if God truly has put it out for all of the nations how in the world do you then justify that it's not for Israel anymore well I'll tell you how you do it you do it in air You do it because you flat out don't understand what the gospel is, what God intended, what God's plan for redemption is, or what he's fully been speaking through the prophets. And it comes down to a case of they have these books called the prophets in their Bible, but they don't read them. They don't understand what's in them. And it's a dangerous thing, spiritually, by the way. They have a whole bunch of stuff from the scripture, but you have no idea what's in it. It's like having an operating manual on a big piece of equipment. I've got the operating manual. It tells me what to do, but I don't refer to it. I go ahead and just run the equipment. How do you think that will turn out? Uh, you might have a problem. Things might not work the way you thought they were going to work. And by the way, with when it comes to faith in God, this is not one of these deals where, well, I'll just, um, I don't need to listen to the instructions. I'll just go feel it out for myself and figure it out for myself. That doesn't work with God. That does not work. That's salvation by works. All right. So that's a major message that's laid out. The stage is now set for what will probably be the most powerful chapter uh, coming in Isaiah for us. But let me get us to there with these last verses. Verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her. Purify yourself, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. I just read the verses to you that explains the the greater exodus. Um, The children of Israel ate the bread of haste when they left. But at the greater exodus... We will not go out in haste. Yes, we'll be eating the bread of haste to remember what happened in the past. But we will not be in haste when we escape this time. We're just going to boldly walk out. And we will separate ourselves from the unclean. We will separate ourselves from the things of the world. And we will not go as fugitives. You won't be breaking the law when you go. Not like when we left Pharaoh, when Pharaoh said, oh, well, you were our slaves and you've run away and I'm going to go get you. We're not fugitives when we leave this time. The Lord will go before you. The Lord's definitely going to lead us. Every once in a while, as I've taught uh, on the greater exodus, uh, people will contact me. And after all that I've been teaching on it, they'll, they'll come back and they'll say, well, where do we go? And it's like, it's a pretty good indicator to me. You haven't really been absorbing the information well, have you? You haven't been learning yet. You still barely can hear the message. All you picked up on was your personal fear. But you didn't hear what the Lord had to say. The part where the Lord promises his salvation and deliverance and how he's going to do it. You didn't hear that part. So you're in this quandary of concern for it. And it's like, how did you hear the part about the greater exodus and that I was a teacher and not hear that part? The part about how God's planned this and going to do this and how the pattern we follow. And the Lord God and God of Israel will be your rear guard. By the way, that is a very powerful and very excellent thing from the Lord. I'm definitely looking. Here's what he's really saying. He's saying that after you escape, after you make it out, uh, don't worry about anybody chasing after you. You remember the children of Israel that came out of it? Pharaoh came to chase him down. It's going to be different this time. You're not going to be eating the bread of haste. You'll not be fugitives. of running away from the government. Okay? Um, I will lead you. I'll show you where we're going to go. And, oh, by the way, don't worry about them coming after you. Wow. To me, personally, that's great assurance for me and for my family and my friends in terms of trusting the Lord for this. That's an incredible, wonderful promise. Verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. Now we're talking about the Messiah. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. When uh, the Messiah returns, um, there are a lot of people that are going to be shocked. Not just those who are opposed to the Lord and faith in him there's going to be a whole lot of people who kind of quote shall we say been in charge here over the Lord's flock over the Lord's things and even they are going to see things they've never seen before and suddenly understand things they never understood before the way I've always tried to explain it to the brethren is when the Lord comes back he's going to wreck your theology It's going to be a lot different when he comes back. And all of the things that you thought was true, all the things that you thought were important, suddenly will come under his power, his authority, and will have his set of priorities. And it will overshadow all the others. Because he will be lifted high up, and there will be no question about it as to who's in charge, who has the authority over all of these things. All right, that brings us to the conclusion of chapter um, 52. Chapter 53 is so meaty and so forth, I've definitely got to wait until the next session before we wade into this one. So that's our teaching for Inside and in Isaiah for this episode.